And after you've marked number 701, we'll revisit Numbers chapter 16 and 17 in just a moment. It's always a delight to gather on the first day of the week, and these songs have lifted our spirits, they encourage us, the message is so marvelous and wonderful. And inasmuch as we sing these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we are doing that which God commands us in Colossians 3 verse 16. The Word of God, as far as the lesson today, entitled, Aaron's Budding Rod. Now the very title probably brings to our appreciation that event that's going to be the central part of our discussion. But this opening slide will again explain a little bit about the placement of it and why it's occurring at this time in the year. Our ladies class is meeting this coming Tuesday, two days from today, six o'clock in the evening, and they're continuing their study of authority. The entirety of that book, in fact, surrounds and centers on that topic, and it'll be no different this Tuesday. And as we have tended to do in the past, our lesson on the Sunday prior to their meeting will at least touch one small aspect of the lesson they'll be considering as well. One of the things they're going to study has to do with the consequences of Aaron's budding rod. The matter of authority. It's sufficient to say that God's very serious about authority. In fact, as you'll notice about the middle of that slide, He has spoken much about authority in the home. The husband is the head. And we realize the parents, again, are those which the children are told to obey your parents, Ephesians 6 verse 1. But not only in the home, we realize in the nation, civil governments have been delegated authority by God, Romans 13 verses 1 and following. And certainly in the church, God's very serious about authority. Elders are such that we as members are told to obey those men, Hebrews 13, 17. I say all that to say God has taken the matter, the subject of authority, very seriously and told us much about it. And today we'll revisit a scene from the Old Testament and relearn again and again the seriousness with which that authority must be taken and lessons that could be very meaningful to you and to me. The particular question that will be a part of the lesson for this Tuesday when our ladies gather is this, where do we get authority for our practices? Let's start that discussion like this. First, it would seem reasonable to at least recollect the setting of that text in number 16. And so let me borrow just a moment and try to do that so that the remainder of that discussion will perhaps be a little bit more easy to appreciate. The children of Israel by this point, they had already left Egypt. The plagues had come upon the land of Egypt, and of course the children of Israel had come out in a mighty hand. In fact, after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh insisted that they leave. And certainly as they journeyed from there, they very soon came to the waters you and I would call the Red Sea. And it appeared very bleak. The pursuing Egyptians were behind them. The waters of the Red Sea before them. And yet God urged Moses, don't be afraid. And He told him to hold out that rod and the waters parted. And although Israel passed through on dry land, when the Egyptians pursued, they, however, were drowned. And we learned that God's deliverance is supreme and, in fact, is complete. As you'll notice in that slide, though, that that's not to say when we recollect that great scene and we think about the power and majesty of it, may we never forget there were problems in Israel. 
on a number of occasions as detailed in the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy especially. There were occasions when you and I are very troubled about what we read. I very quickly listed just a couple of them. God charged that very same people, the ones who had seen the Red Sea part, the very ones who had seen the plagues come on Egypt. He charged them with unbelief. You didn't believe me. The setting surrounding that was this. Twelve spies were sent and ten of them came back and said, We cannot take it, although it is a fertile land of milk and honey. We are as grasshoppers in their sight. They're strong and fortified and we can't take it. God said, because you didn't believe me, you're going to wander 38 more years in this wilderness. Unbelief. But not only did God directly charge them with that, abject disobedience. God had told them very clearly by that point they had what you and I would call the Ten Commandments, as well as the other laws that went along with it. And one of them was about the Sabbath. You remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Exodus 20, verses 6 and following. And yet, there was a man picking up sticks on the Sabbath in Numbers 15, and God said, put that man to death. And they stoned him. God says what He means, and He means what He says. And at that point, I said, as if it weren't serious enough that there was disobedience on the one hand and unbelief on the other, when we and I arrive at chapter 16, it begins like this. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, two hundred and fifty princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord." You may notice about the midst of that slide, the reading that I've just called to our attention in Numbers 16, verses 1 through 3, might well be summarized in the following way. Let me paraphrase some of that so that we can gain a sense of how this was a matter of authority. Moses and Aaron were the chosen leaders of Israel. And in fact, Moses was the one who occupied the principal position. Now, it's true that Aaron was the spokesman, but isn't it also to be noted that they occupied a rather fundamental and high place, and they didn't take that to themselves. God put them there. Isn't it true? Aaron was going to be, and was already by this time, the first high priest. He, by the very decree of God, was authorized to offer sacrifices in the appropriate way, to enter the most holy place one day a year. It was Him, nobody else. And yet on this occasion, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, in a very noteworthy way, came before Moses and Aaron and said, You take too much on you. All of us are holy. We can officiate just like you can. I hope we each can see this was a matter of authority. This was abject rebellion 
to what God had decreed relative to the positions of Moses and Aaron. You and I will then wonder, what did God do? How did He answer this rebellion? What did He do to authorize the sorts of things that He wanted Moses and Aaron to appreciate? You may notice about the bottom of that slide. If I jump forward in number 16, may I call to your attention, beginning in verse number 24, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him, and he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. May I ask us to note the wording that was descriptive of their efforts. I know that there are many times when it perhaps would be tempting for some to say, well, here these folks just have a good idea. If all of us are holy, then that means that's less work for Moses and Aaron. Wouldn't that be a better distribution of the efforts? That's not the way God saw it. Did you note His description of them? Verse number 26, they are wicked. What they're imagining is completely wrong. Notice how the verse ends. They're guilty of sin. This which they're doing is not only not a trivial matter, it's a wicked thing and sinful. And so it is on that slide. Through the power of God, Moses makes this decree. Let me begin reading in verse number 28. And Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, all these works, for I have not done them of mine own hand. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, and all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord." That statement is probably one that has encouraged their imagination so many times. Moses directly in the presence of the entirety of the congregation of Israel says, If these men die of old age, God hadn't sent me. But if God makes a new thing and the earth opens up and swallows them alive, then rest assured that we all appreciate they provoked God. At that point, verse number 31 says this, And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. They and all that pertained unto them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation." What a stirring scene. Can you imagine being a witness to that event? What a timeless set of lessons touching the subject of authority. And yet, as that took place, God had even more to say. Because it brings us to the next chapter. This saga continues in 17. At this point, we now have Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and all their stuff gone. The earth opened up, swallowed them, and then the earth closed upon them. It's not like you could dig them out. They were completely buried alive. 
at that point, remember the issue of authority had been raised. Those people, there were 250 other princes, and they had challenged God's authority through Moses and Aaron. And now in chapter 17, God does something, hopefully in a very memorable way for them, that would put to rest this challenge to the authority vested in Moses and Aaron, specifically the priesthood of Aaron. Chapter 17 then proceeds as follows. I've tried to summarize much of it on the slide. The matter begins like this. Verse number 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, and take of every one of them a rod according to the house of their fathers, of all their princes according to the house of their fathers, twelve rods. Write, every thy, write thou every man's name upon his rod." There were twelve tribes in Israel, and so God through Moses said, here's what I want you to do. Every tribe you supply a rod, and after they've been collected, you write the name of that tribe on each rod from which that rod was taken. And then here's what you do with them. Verse number 6, Moses spake unto the children of Israel, and every one of their princes gave him a rod apiece, for each prince one according to the fathers' houses, even twelve rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. You get the idea. The rods were collected, the names were written on each one, and then they were put in the tabernacle. And there they stayed overnight. Seems a harmless event. Twelve rods, each one with a different name on it. But yet God had made something known, and we are about to see something dramatic. Verses 4 and 5 had said, Thou shalt lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony where I will meet with you. And it shall come to pass that the man's rod, whom I shall choose, shall blossom, and I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against you." Please note carefully the pronouns. I'm going to remove the murmurings of Israel, which they murmur against you. So they had murmured about the authority of Moses and Aaron. We can serve as priests, they said. We're as holy as you are, they said. God said, I'm going to put to rest that kind of nonsense. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to select one of these rods. The one that I choose, the one that is to serve as the priest, I'm going to select it. And now verse number 8 reads as follows, And it came to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded, and brought forth buds, and bloomed blossoms, and yielded almonds. And Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord unto all the children of Israel, and they looked and took every man his rod. As you can see on that slide, with the names on it, they now knew that Aaron's rod had budded. It was as though it was not only alive, but very much so. It brought forth almonds overnight. Isn't that amazing? This stick that had merely been a rod at some point for perhaps some distance of time, and Aaron's rod again was known from the days, of, of course, of the plagues. That rod had been used as a symbol of God's authority. And now that rod overnight brought forth ripe almonds. 
as you and I close that slide, I wonder what lesson Israel learned from it. At least at the moment, could I invite your attention to verses 10 and following. And the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels. Note the wording. These people were rebels who thought like this. And thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. And Moses did so as the Lord commanded him, so did he. And the children of Israel spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, we die, we perish, we all perish. Whosoever cometh anything near unto the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Shall we be consumed with dying? When they saw the rod of Aaron had budded, they recognized the danger in which they were. It is not our lot to question God's hierarchy. Did you notice they themselves said in verse 13, whoever comes to the tabernacle. Well, that's where the priests were supposed to go, and they all thought they were supposed to act like priests or in fact could do so. And now they learned they were mistaken. Anybody that does unauthorized will die. God taught them a lesson, as you can see in the picture. Aaron's rod budded, and that was to be an unforgettable lesson to them, that God's matter of authority is significant. He had chosen Moses and Aaron. He had selected Aaron as the high priest, and there was no other. There was to be no one else that would serve in that capacity. How significant is the matter of authority? Let's devote the remainder of our time to drawing some lessons about this set of events that can be very meaningful to us as well. Lesson number one. Authority in religion is of the utmost importance. May I say again, authority in the realm of religion is of almost inestimable importance. Let's develop it perhaps like this. For the most part, throughout the course of time, men who are wise will at least appreciate this truth. In Leviticus 17, 14, Jesus, in fact, highlighted the nature and importance of authority. And in Acts 4, verse 7, even those rather wicked Jews would say, By what authority have you done this? They knew that you weren't able to do things in the tabernacle without appropriate authority. But as you and I develop it more thoroughly, let's make the case, and very strongly so, each person cannot pleasingly do in the name of religion, what he or she wants to. It has never worked this way. Coradathan and Abiram tried it. They were buried alive because of it. We want to serve as priests just like you, Aaron. But God had not authorized them. He hadn't selected and chosen them. And so it continues, and so it is. What about verses like these? In Jeremiah 10, verse 23... Aren't you and I reminded in a rather dramatic way? It's not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. Or what about this one? Judges 17 verse 6. When every man did that which was right in his own eyes, what was the consequence of it? It wasn't good. It was one of the bleakest, darkest, most sin-filled and iniquity-ridden time in Israel's history. When? When people did what they wanted to do. When they did what they thought was right in their own eyes. 
And that hasn't changed till, the, till this day. Look at perhaps one more verse. In 1 Kings 12, verses 28 and following, there Jeroboam, of course, did what he thought was right or appropriate. And God later would say, that was sin. He caused Israel to sin. Perhaps one final thought on that point. You and I perhaps on occasions try this today, don't we? You can perhaps imagine it. Scenarios such as this. The last couple of weeks have been so hard at work. It's just been demanding. My friends, they're taking a little excursion, a vacation. What if I took the Lord's Supper on Friday night? That way I could go be with them on Sunday. I wouldn't miss any services. I would worship on Friday night. Everything would be in order. And in fact, it actually would work out great because while I'm there, I'll talk to them about the Bible. I might win them to Christ. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound like reasonable reasoning? And the fact is, it's completely wrong. Why? Because we are not authorized to worship on Friday night. That's it. If we take the Lord's Supper on Friday, we've committed a sin. He hadn't authorized us to take it that day. And yet you could compound that kind of scenario on so many additional occasions. It seems reasonable, seems good. The only problem is God hasn't authorized it. What about lesson number two? In addition to that one, consider this one. We have already mentioned this concept of authority on a number of occasions, but might we take note that God has a hierarchy in regard to authority. In that day of Israel, Moses and Aaron were the chosen leaders. And after Moses, it was going to be Joshua. It wasn't just left to anybody to occupy the position or the role of the priest, or for that matter, of the other attributes in Israel. The implication of that, perhaps for you and me, for the church at large, consider this. I have a word that I've placed in italics, the word head. There are many times in the Word of God when isn't it true that the word head is utilized in a way that is clearly indicative of authority. Look at some of these verses. In Genesis 3.15, the first occurrence that I can find at least in the Bible of that word, you would remember the setting, Adam and Eve had committed sin, and they, together with a serpent, were now being, in essence, shall we say, redressed by God. And on that occasion, when he addressed the serpent, he said, Thou shalt bruise his heel, he shall bruise thy head. Whatever authority the serpent had, in the final analysis, the Lord was going to take all of it. He's going to bruise your head. And so the club of death that the devil had held for so long, at Calvary the Lord took it from him. And now there's no need to fear death for those that serve the Lord. But look at yet another example in Psalm 118, verse 22, another recognition of the head. There in the context, it's that head that serves as the chief cornerstone, the authority. That upon which everything else is built. And when we come to the New Testament, how central is that thinking relative to Jesus? May I recollect with you Colossians 1.18. Speaking of Christ, He is the head of the body, 
Isn't that direct? He's the head of the body. All authority rests with Him. Doesn't rest with me, the Pope, bishops, cardinals, or anybody else. It rests with the Lord Jesus Christ. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, verse number 18. Consider this. What a great principle then is to be noted in this matter of authority. I've asked you to consider 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. As Paul addressed the church at Corinth, he made mention in a very direct way to them that the man is the head of the woman, Christ is the head of man, God is the head of Christ. Now that is an ordering that is very plain and very straightforward. And isn't it true that that hierarchy is thus a reminder to us that not only is authority important, but God has specified the arrangement of it. Lesson number three. It would seem fair to at least highlight the rebellion to authority. And I've entitled it as follows. Rebellion to that established authority is severely punished. I know that as you and I recollect what happened to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the earth opening up and swallowing them whole. And not only they, but everything they owned. It's as if they were no more a part in any way of Israel. All that they'd stood for, all that had been a part of who they were, all of it was gone. They were rebels, wicked men. Let's develop some points then like this. In this instance, and in so many other cases in the Word of God, God severely punished those that would question and trample underfoot His authority. May we appreciate that that will ever be true. These particular verses. The New Testament even has some things for you and me to consider. What about Diotrephes in 3 John 9? On that instance, we have record of a man who elevated himself in the church. He would, he would throw people out of the church. Unauthorized, not doing what he ought to do. He elevated himself over that local congregation in such a way that he was the dictate. John severely reprimanded him. And in fact, the punishment that's therein described is certainly a very strong thing indeed. Not only him, what about Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4.15? Here again, a man who exalted himself in matters of religion, in circumstances of authority, above what would be appropriate and that which the Word of God would, would authorize. And Paul severely stated through the nature of God how God's judgment would be upon him. It certainly is fair to say a person may live quite some time on earth, but there's coming a time when the day of judgment will occur. Can you imagine how frightening it would be to stand before the awesome presence of God in all of the greatness attached to it, the one whose power is unlimited with hell hanging in the balance? and to have rebelled against His authority, to acted with renegade rebellion, doing what I wanted instead of what He told me to do, and perhaps even to try and carry His name with respect to it. I think the book of Revelation 
highlights in chapters 19 and 20 the fate of those in that category. But perhaps a few final thoughts. Didn't the devil try this? Didn't the devil try this? We have in the Word of God that there was at some point in the distant past this being in heaven who was not happy with his estate. Jude verses 4 through 6 indicate he wanted something more. I want a higher place. What happened to him? We all know what happened to him. He's going to be sent to hell for eternity. And all of those who act just like him will have the same fate. A challenge to God's authority is incredibly serious. And it's punished overwhelmingly. Lesson number four builds on this point. To ask us to think with some clarity about the circumstances of our day. And how easy it can be to fall into traps that are not good. I've entitled it like this. So we notice here that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram wanted to do what they were not authorized to do. Well, isn't it still true today that it's not that difficult for someone to perhaps desire, perhaps even to make inroads to accomplishing, doing what they aren't authorized to do. And so all do not have the right to do the things in religion. I would ask us to recollect some Old Testament examples. What about Uzzah? And what about Saul? In the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, Saul came to a point where he offered sacrifice to God. Question, was he authorized? On the surface, doesn't it sound wonderful? I, I sacrificed to God. That sounds great. God wasn't happy. I wonder why. God, in fact, was so angry at him. That was the first cog in the ultimate decision. I'm going to take the kingdom from you, Saul, and give it to somebody better than you. The problem is he wasn't authorized. Only the priests were authorized. Saul was not of the tribe of Levi. There was the problem. I hope we each think clearly about this. Authority means everything in religion. Something may otherwise be considered as reasonably good, but if it's not authorized, it suddenly becomes terribly wrong. Uzzah, he reached out and touched the ark, but I was just trying to keep it from falling. That didn't matter. You aren't authorized to touch it. You're not a Levite. And he died. The authority vested in situations like that reminds us to this day that the principle, again, reminds us that Aaron's rod was the only one that budded. The other tribes were not authorized to serve as priests. They weren't. And if they did so, it would be a rebellion against God. And so today, making the implications, the applications of that, maybe leads us to this. We live in a world where there is such a hearkening for freedom and liberty, including in the name of religion. Shouldn't I be able to do what makes me feel good? Shouldn't I be able to do what makes me happy? If God hasn't authorized it, the answer still is no. It doesn't matter how it makes me feel. 
And so we see today a clamoring. On occasions, there are females who want to serve as an elder. They want to preach in the public assemblies of mixed audiences. And they may well be wonderful speakers. They may well have prepared a fine lesson. But it doesn't matter. Because in 1 Timothy 2.11, God says that that's not what He wants. And that's not what He's authorized. There are others who would say, in regard to the matters of the church, or in things touching its overall characteristics, even calling into question some of the things of the gospel. But might you and I remember the gospel in a very clear way highlights what authority that God has presented. And though we noted it earlier, it's fine to say it again. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. That means none of it falls outside Him. And what His Word does not authorize is absolutely forbidden. Only one lesson remains. Lesson number five. How wonderful it would be and how wonderful it is when individuals respect and submit to God's authority, behaving submissively to that which He has authorized and that which He has asserted. It makes a group of people who not only are confident and dedicated, but a group of people who, of course, behave in ways they know are absolutely correct. That development led me to invite you to consider these points about the middle of that slide. Our God does have the right to give us orders and commandments. He created us. All things we have are due to Him, Acts 17, verses 25 and following. And so it is that by creation He has that right. But it's even more than that. He knows what's best for me and you. He knows what makes us the happiest. He knows what makes us the most fulfilled. He knows what makes us such that we can make use in the grandest way of those capabilities we have. And that's when we obey Him. When we disobey Him is when we make mistakes. We cause others to make mistakes. We involve ourselves in issues and problems, and we call into question our love for Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And notice that was not stated with, you'll keep my commandments as long as you think that's the right thing to do. It doesn't matter what we think. We started this lesson with this question, where do we get authority for our practices? We've answered it rather overwhelmingly. Aaron's rod that budded is the final statement that we'll use today to remind us that we get authority for our practices from God. He dictated it on that occasion. And let's close our lesson like this. We have revisited Numbers chapter 16 and 17, reflected on that which occurred about the challenge to God's authority vested through Moses and Aaron. But the implications are as needful today as they ever were. When you and I think about the acts of worship, the conduct of the church, any of the particulars of it, the statement still reads like this, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus, in Colossians 3.17, is another way of saying, by authority of Christ, 
Aren't you thankful to be a part of the body of Christ? To be able to worship Him in truth and in spirit and to live a life pleasing in His sight. It could be that there's someone in the audience today who upon reflection on the authority we've studied has begun to think about some things in your life. Or am I doing these things despite God's authority? That is, as a rebellion to Him. If you are, please make a change today. The Bible calls that repentance. As you do that, come back to your first love. We'd be honored to pray on your behalf to God. As you repent and confess those things, He'll forgive them. If you've never become a Christian, though, today, if you've reached an age of knowing wrong from right, you know Jesus died for you, but to this point, you have shown no interest in it. Don't you realize you're rebelling against His authority? He said, if you love me, you will do what I tell you. And don't you want to go to heaven? If you'd like to obey the gospel publicly today, you must believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and submit to baptism. And as you do that, you'll rise from that watery grave, a new person under the heading of 2 Corinthians 5.17. And if we could be of assistance in that way today, what a great day for each of us it'd be. If we could be of help right now, won't you come while together we stand and sing?